We want to turn this morning again to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to the end of the chapter, where Paul discusses the nature of our resurrection body. The first 34 verses of this chapter uh, are concerned with the fact of the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. But in these closing verses, he uh, Paul's uh, interest now turns toward the nature of that body. What is it like? What will it be like? That's a subject I'm sure that uh, intrigues all of us. Because we're Christians and we have the assurance of the resurrection from the dead, we know that our bodies will be raised. We'll have eternal bodies. But then the question is, what will that body be like? Will we have arms and legs? Will we have hair in heaven? Will we... Uh, <laughs> will we be uh, like ghosts and uh, be invisible? Uh, like the spiritual says, will we roll around heaven all day? What, uh, what is it like? What will our resurrection bodies... Uh, be like that's that's Paul's concern here in uh, in this chapter. Carolyn once uh, read the words in Matthew where Jesus said that those in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. And after she read that passage, she was greatly disturbed because, as she said, she didn't want to be like the angels. She wanted to be married all through eternity. She used to say that. She doesn't say it quite as frequently anymore. <laughs> But uh, that disturbed her, and perhaps that's raised a question in your mind. Will we have mates in heaven? What will life be like? Well, that's Paul's concern in these verses. Let's begin reading with verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul begins with uh, with a twofold question, and he probably is is echoing a question that had been raised in the minds of the Corinthians. The first question is one that I'm sure you've asked many times. How are the dead raised? What are the mechanics of that resurrection? It's one thing to think of a dead body, a body that's been properly uh, prepared for burial, and uh, to think of the resurrection of that body. While that might be difficult, that doesn't pose quite the problem that other situations might present. What if someone's been cremated and their ashes have been scattered on, on the ocean? Or uh, they're a victim of some terrible catastrophe. What? Uh, how will God uh, bring the parts of the body back together and make that a whole body? So the first question here is one of mechanics. How will God do it? The second question that Paul raises, with what kind of body do they come, is concerned more with the shape or the form of this body. What will it be like? Paul's reaction to those questions is so sharp, it leads me to believe that they were not sincere questions. They weren't raised to get answers. They were raised in order to present obstacles to Christian faith. I remember a, um, a professor once that I had in school who announced to the class one day that there are three types of questions that students ask. Some questions, he said, uh, are asked to get information. Those, he said, I'll entertain at any time. Other students, he said, ask questions to show how much they know. And he said, those I won't respond to. And then there's a third type of questions, a question where students ask uh, in order to show how little the prof knows. And that, he says, I won't answer either. 
Now, this seems to be what's going on in the background. We can't be sure, but Paul's reaction is so sharp. Uh, we gather that uh, they were posing these questions in order to keep uh, faith, that uh, uh, keep away from believing. They didn't want to believe. So they raised an objection, and then they made a deduction from it. It's the same sort of thing that people do all the time when they when they say about the Lord, how could he be God and still pray to the Father in heaven? How absurd. I can't believe anything like that. Or how can three people be one? Or one thing be three? That's ridiculous. I can't, I can't believe that. That seems to be what's in the back of, in the background of these questions. Well, Paul answers in verse 36. You fool, he says. Paul is never one to mince words. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now, Paul alludes to a, a practice here that all of these people were involved in. This was largely an agrarian society. They were familiar with the natural process of growth. You put a seed in the ground and it, it produces life. But the seed that you put in the ground is nothing like the growth that, that ensues. You take a, a brown uh, husk, a seed that doesn't appear to have any life, and you put it in the ground. And uh, the process of deterioration continues. The seed uh, eventually is almost absorbed away. If you were to dig it up, there wouldn't be much left there at all. But then in the spring, if you're observant, the ground begins to crack. And a little green shoot comes up through the hard soil, and it has tender leaves on the end, and it begins to grow. If that were not such a common experience, we would say, now that's a true miracle. I put a little brown seed in the ground, and it didn't have any life in it at all, apparently, and out of the ground came a green shoot that it corresponds in, in almost no way to what I put in the ground. Now, that's the point that Paul is making. What God brings out of the grave doesn't correspond to what we put in the grave. It's a different kind of body. Now, how can that be? Well, Paul answers their first question. How are the dead raised? And his answer really is very simple. God does it. Verse 38. God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. You'll notice a change in uh, in verb tenses here. And the first verb, gives, is a present tense verb. The second verb, he wished, puts the action in the past, a point of action in the past. In other words, the process of life that God imparts to the seed is according to God's sovereign plan. God has a design, and he follows that design. And he's working out that design in the world in a miraculous way. Out of a dead seed comes a particular kind of life. And it's a different kind of life life than what is placed in, in the ground. It's a life that's suited to a new environment. And then Paul elaborates in verses 39 and following. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. If you observe the natural world around you, you'll see that there are different kinds of bodies. 
Men don't look like birds, and birds don't look like fish, and fish don't look like cattle. And if you haven't learned that yet, I certainly don't want to go bird hunting with you. They're all different. Birds have feathers, and they have wings, and their bones are hollow. They're suited for a particular environment. And uh, some animals have heavy fur. They're adapted to a colder environment. And there's man. He has a different kind of flesh. The point is there is a there's diversity, and each body is given for a specific purpose. It's uniquely suited to its environment. And then in verse 40, Paul points out that there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. In other words, there are bodies that are suited for life on this earth. There are earthly bodies. They fly through the atmosphere or swim through the seas or they walk on the ground. And then there are heavenly bodies, which he describes in verse 41. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. There's the sun, which has a particular function. It warms us, gives us light. And there's the moon that has an effect on our earth. It has an effect on the tides and, and the seasons. And it has a great effect on young lovers. And uh, then there are the stars that, that differ from one another in magnitude and in glory, each suited to its particular environment, you see. And the point that he's trying to make is that in God's design, he makes bodies that are uniquely equipped for the environment for which they are designed or intended. And that's all Paul will tell us at this point about our bodies. God has a plan for the resurrection body that will suit it for its new environment, which is heaven. And then in verses 42 through 44, he applies that principle to the resurrection of the dead. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is the body, is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It's sown a body that's subject to decay. It's raised a body that's immune to decay. It goes on eternally. It never declines in worth or value or strength or power. You see, the problem with our bodies now is that they, uh, they're perishable. We start out life with a great deal of vigor and strength, and the older you get, the more you appreciate the fact that the body is losing its elasticity, its efficiency, and, and its power. It's not what it used to be. The spirit is still there. The desire is there to do the things that we did as young men and young women, but, but the ability is no longer there because our bodies are prone to decay and decline. Last Friday, I was up in the hills, and I ran across a very interesting gentleman up there who's lived in Idaho all of his life. <clears throat> He's in his 80s now. And as most of you know, I'm very much interested in, in Idaho history, and so I pumped him for about an hour about uh, the events that took place in his youth in this area. He used to have a farm over here on Curtis Avenue in 1912. And he told me about uh, uh, the difficulty in getting up here in the, on the bench in the wintertime because the horses couldn't pull uh, pull the sleds up uh, what now is uh, Fairview. And we had an interesting chat together. And he's uh, in his 80s and he's very feeble and, and weak, hardly able to talk. And I happened to look on the wall and I saw a picture on, of him that was taken about 50 years ago. And he was a great giant of a man. 
and a very impressive looking person with his jaw jutting out, and now he didn't have any teeth, and uh, uh, it was just obvious that the process of death had begun to set in very early in his life, and though he'd been a strong, vigorous, uh, pioneer-type individual in his youth, now he was weak and, and feeble. He could just talk about the past, but his body didn't have the strength to accomplish what, what his mind wanted to, wanted to do, and that's, that's the problem with our bodies. They just, uh, as Jesus put it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But God is preparing a body for us that's uniquely suited for our new environment, and it's an imperishable body. Furthermore, in verse 43, he says, it's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. And that's why we bury dead bodies, because they're dishonorable. They're not worth anything anymore, even the components are not very valuable. We just put it in the grave and try to get it out of sight because it's dishonorable. Some of you Shakespeare buffs will remember uh, uh, the scene in Hamlet where Hamlet finds the exhumed skull of his friend Yarrick and he says, Alas, poor Yarrick, I knew you well. And then he casts the skull away because of the stench. It's just dishonor. Nothing there of value or worth. But Paul says the body that's raised will be a valuable body. It'll be worthwhile rather than dishonorable. And then it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Again, the problem with this body is that it's weak, and it gets weaker all the time. A lot of you men spent an awful lot of years in your youth lifting weights and running and trying to build up some strength in your body. You've probably envisioned yourself as a world-class uh, sprinter or something. And yet, uh, as the years go on, you discover how weak your body really is. And though Muhammad Ali can say he's the greatest, some ape with his arm tied behind his back could lick him. We're not strong. We're not powerful. We're weak. But Paul says uh, the body that we'll receive will be a powerful body. It'll be capable of fulfilling every desire of the Spirit. And then in verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The word natural here means soulish. It's controlled by the soul, the personality of man, the mind, emotions, and will. You know, what, what you have on out there is, a, is an earth suit. That's not really you. I'm standing up here moving my lips and, and uh, talking out through my earth suit. But really, I'm inside. I remember once lying on the floor one Sunday afternoon trying to get a nap, and, and one of my children, I've forgotten which one, sat on my chest trying to wake me up and and I pretended to be asleep, so he'd leave me alone, and pretty soon he pried one of my eyes open, and he looked in there, and <coughs> he said, I know you're in there, Dad. <laughs> well, this is just a suit that uh, God gave me to use here on the earth to, uh, to express my character and my individual, uh, individuality in, in the world, but that's all it is, just an earth suit. It's subject to the soul. It's subject to all the moods and, uh, of the soul and the bad genes that I inherited from my forefathers, and all the other problems that, come, that are associated with soulish, natural life. But Paul says the time is coming when we'll have a spiritual body, a body that's subject to the Spirit, a body that will fulfill all the desires of our spirit. And then there follows from 44 on through 49 a little excursus on, on the earth suit versus the... Uh, the heavenly suit. Notice how he 
how he describes uh, the two. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam, of course, was, was Adam, the first man. And God uh, gathered some dust together, some dirt, and he made a man, and he breathed into it the breath of life, and it became a living soul. So the first man, Adam, was a living soul. But the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, was a life-giving spirit. Now he goes on, however the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, we start out in life with a body that we inherited from Adam. It's a natural body, it's a soulish body, it's an earth suit designed for life on earth. And then the spiritual comes. We receive another house. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The word earthy means made of dust. God made Adam out of the, out of the dust of the earth. That was Adam's origin. And that's all he was in body. It was earth, dust. I remember hearing a story of, of, of a little boy who first uh, discovered that man was made out of the dust of the earth. And as he was going to bed one night, he looked under the bed and he saw some dust uh, bunnies under the bed. And, and he ran downstairs to the kitchen and he said, Mom, there's a man under my bed, but I don't know whether he's coming or going. <coughs> but that's all we are. We're just... We're just dust, just dirt. As a friend of mine says, there's no one made out of super dust. We're just dust. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. That's his origin. As is the, the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. That is, we just uh, live out the characteristics of those bodies. As long as we have our earth suit, we have to be content with weakness and infirmity, and loss of efficiency, lack of power. Lack of motivation at times because we know we just can't fulfill our aspirations. That's the way life is. But not so the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, he says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And in that one phrase, Paul tells us what the resurrection body is like. And as you read through the New Testament, it might uh, discourage you to find that so, so little is said about our resurrection bodies, but actually a great deal is said. Because what God tells us is that our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body. You see, we have borne the image of the earthy. We, throughout this life, the three score and ten that God gives us, we have Adam's life. We're part of Adam's family. We inherited our human life from him. But those of us that belong to Jesus Christ, who are in his family, inherit a heavenly body which is, which is like his body. That's the point that Paul is making. It's the same thing that Paul says in Philippians 3. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And then again in 1 John 3, John writes, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet that we shall be. 
In other words, we're in God's family and we're sons of God, but we don't look like sons of God. We don't look any different from anyone else in the world. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, when Jesus comes back, then we'll be transformed and we'll look like sons of God. The whole world will know. That's what Paul calls the revelation of the sons of God. That's the final revelation of what we really are. We'll have a body like his. Now, that's, it's an interesting exercise to begin to think through what Jesus' body was like after the resurrection. Have you ever thought that one through? In the first place, he was recognizable. They knew exactly who he was. Now, there are a couple of instances where people didn't recognize him. One was uh, on the road to Emmaus as he walked along with the disciples. And it wasn't until later that they discovered it was Jesus. But Luke tells us very clearly that they were prevented from seeing him. Their eyes were blinded for a period of time. And then there's a the story of Mary Magdalene who confused Jesus with the gardener. And often that's pointed to as an illustration that Jesus must have been different. But again, the Gospels tell us that Mary's eyes were blinded by tears. She was weeping. And Jesus came up behind her. She thought he was the gardener. But the moment he spoke to her, she knew exactly who it was. She called him Rabboni, teacher. And when Jesus appeared in the, uh, in the, in the room with the apostles, they knew him. When they were on the Sea of Galilee and he was preparing a fire for breakfast and they saw him, they knew. Peter says, it's the Lord. So he was recognizable right down to the scars that he bore in his hands and in his side. He had all the distinguishing marks that he had borne during his earthly life. So apparently in heaven, throughout eternity, we'll be recognizable. I'll know Bill, Gary, and we'll know each other and perhaps even bear the marks that we bore on this body in some way. Presumably we'll have perfect bodies, as Jesus' body was perfect. But outwardly, we'll, we'll be recognizable. I suppose I won't even have hair in heaven. But I've always suspected that because the Bible says there's no parting there. <coughs> Sorry about that. There's an interesting statement in Luke 24. When Jesus invites them, to uh, place their hands on him as he appeared to the disciples. And his comment is that I'm not, I'm not a ghost. I'm here in flesh and bone. It's interesting. The resurrection body that Jesus had wasn't... Uh, you could touch it. You could feel it. He could be held. It was a solid body that, uh, again, a perfect body, but a body that was very much like uh, the body that he had while he was here on the earth during the period between the resurrection and his ascension. He walked places with the disciples and talked to them. Uh, he ate with them. He took a piece of meat and he ate it. And he said, observe, say that I'm, I'm not a ghost. I'm real. On another occasion, on the Sea of Galilee, when the disciples had filled their, their boat with fish, he ate with them. So apparently, he, though he didn't need to eat, he could eat. 
And uh, he walked from one place to the next. He didn't float through the air. Although it appears that he was not limited in any way in, in space or time, he could appear in a room with the doors closed. He could move from one place to the next uh, at the speed of thought. You see. Uh, it's interesting to, to read through the closing chapters of the Gospels and see that most of what Jesus did during his 40-day his uh, post-resurrection uh, ministry was very much like uh, the things that he had done before. He spent time talking to the disciples. And they gathered around the fire at night and they talked about life and things. Presumably he fished with them. Maybe he went hunting with them. I don't know. But life went on as, as before. They did the things that they enjoyed doing together. His body was not limited. He apparently could, could move out of this, uh, this dimension, the earthly dimension, into the spiritual dimension and back with the speed of thought. But his body was very much like the body that, that we have, but unlimited, see, imperishable, powerful, adequate to uh, meet the demands of, of his spirit. And the interesting thing to me is that he seemed to carry on his relationships with the disciples as he had done before. They spent a great deal of time talking together and fellowshipping and enjoying the things that they had enjoyed uh, prior to the to the resurrection. You know, God has, has placed so many things in the world that are a source of joy to us. And I think these are simply the prelude for, to the greater joy that we'll have throughout eternity. God's not, not going to take these things away from us, the relationships that we have. The passage that I referred to earlier, Jesus' rebuttal uh, of, the, of the Sadducees to the Sadducees and their their dismissal of the resurrection when he said that those in, in heaven neither marry nor give in marriage but are like, like the angels. If you look at the parallel passage in Luke, you'll discover really what Jesus is saying. He says, they neither marry nor give in marriage because they do not die, but they're like the angels, they're sons of God. In other words, in other words there's no reason to perpetuate the race because they don't die. So there won't be any, any babies born throughout the eternal state. That's Jesus' point. Not that we won't have relationships with one another. Now, how, how God works this out, I don't know. That's where we have to trust God. But those relationships will go on. We'll know each other. And perhaps throughout all eternity, we'll, we'll be learning more and more about each other. I don't think the process of knowledge will stop. We'll go on growing and serving and loving and doing the things that, that we do in this life that are so enjoyable to us, except they'll be enhanced infinitely because there are no limitations, none whatever. You see, one of the problems with, with fellowshipping with one another is that it has to come to an end. We get tired and we have to go home and go to bed. But you won't have to do that in eternity. The New Testament revelation of heaven and hell is very interesting. The Bible tells us very little about hell. But one of the most significant statements is Paul's comment in 2 Thessalonians that they are excluded from the power and the presence of God. Now that's something that no one in this world has ever experienced. We've never been excluded from the power and the presence of God because you see it's God's presence that makes everything worthwhile. It's God who gives us our sense of beauty and our appreciation of, of life. 
It's God who gives us joy and laughter and the love that parents have for their children. That comes from God. And, uh, and unbelievers experience that joy. No one has, has ever been excluded from God's presence or power. But apparently God loves us enough that he let us, let us have our own way. And if we choose to live apart from God, then he'll let us have that choice. And death simply sets in concrete that decision. And the unbeliever goes out into eternity without God. That's what makes hell, hell. There's no joy. There's no laughter. There's no light. There's nothing that makes life meaningful or purposeful. That's what hell is. But conversely, heaven is the power and presence of God fully expressed. So that means everything in this life from which we've derived enjoyment will be carried with us into heaven. Our fellowship with one another, our love, our relationship, our laughter, the things that we enjoy doing with our bodies. Uh, one, one of my great delights is uh, when some of my friends fly me out over the, the sawtooths. And I get to look down on the sawtooths and see the grandeur and the beauty of that part of our state. But uh, how great it will be to have a, a body in which you can do that sort of thing. And you're not hampered by an airplane. And uh, not only fly over the new earth, but, but throughout God's vast creation. I believe there are an infinite number of, of planets and stars waiting to be explored with one another. And all of that, Paul says, we can do in a body that's, that's imperishable, it's powerful, it's adequate for this new environment. Now in verses 50 to the end, Paul concludes his argument. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, I don't have time to elaborate on this passage, except to say that the Jews had a very literal concept of, of the kingdom. It, it would be a kingdom much like David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom. And a son of David would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule, and, and that is predicted for, for Israel in Scripture. But, you, but Paul adds a new note here, a mystery. Something that we would not know apart from Revelation. And that is flesh and blood, that is our human bodies, those of us who, who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as our king, will not inherit the kingdom of God with fleshly bodies. The dead will be raised, Paul says, and their bodies will be changed. And we who are alive will be changed as well, so that those who go into the kingdom will go into the kingdom with bodies that are uniquely suited for that new environment. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Who wants to drag this miserable body around throughout eternity? All of these attempts through cryogenics and all the other things that we do to try to preserve human life as we now know it are futile. futile. Who wants to keep this body? Paul says God has a better plan. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sin is what makes death so formidable. Because when I die, I know that I, I'm going to face God. And, and there's sin in my life. That's the problem with sin. We all do it. And I can look back over my life and see that there are people that I've hurt, there are attitudes that I've had, there are actions that I've taken that have been destructive and harmful and wrong. And, I, and I'm still uh, I'm capable of doing anything, even now. And I don't want to die and face God with the weight of my sin. And furthermore, Paul says, the strength or the power of sin is the law. The law tells me precisely what my sin is. It spells it out. Thou shalt not covet. And I know I've coveted. So I'm culpable. I have to stand before God and answer. But I don't. Because Jesus died for that sin. He died for all my sins, past, present, and future. So I don't, I'm no longer accountable for my sins in the past, not because I've somehow worked myself into God's good graces, but because Jesus died for those sins. And he removed from me and from you the fear of death because sin has been taken care of. And I now have a new power, the power to say no to the moods, temptations that uh, control my life, my temper, lustful fantasies, all sorts of things that from time to time control us. I have in Christ now the capacity to live in victory now. You see, that's what Paul is saying in verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a present tense verb. It's going on now. We already have that victory. But when he comes again, that victory will be seen it will be manifest to the whole world. The final enemy, Paul says, to be vanquished is death. And then his victory will be revealed. I've often told Carolyn that when I go, I want her to pick four strong men and go out into the desert and get a post hole auger and dig an 18-inch hole about 18, 8 feet deep and drop me in feet first because I want to be headed in the right direction. <laughs> and then everyone stand around and sing the hallelujah chorus. That's what we as Christians ought to do at funerals. Certainly we will miss the person that's gone. But we live now in victory. And the time is coming, Paul says, when the last trump will sound. The trumpet was the instrument that was used to call together God's people. And there will be a great gathering from the four corners of the earth. And God's victory will be, will be seen. And so Paul concludes in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. In other words, stick to it. Don't give up. Don't give up on your marriage. The world tells us that uh, this you just go around once, and if you've got the wrong partner, what a miserable way to live. So get rid of him or her and, and get someone else that will adequately meet your needs. Instead of staying in that situation and laying hold of God's grace to be the right kind of person and love that individual regardless of how they respond. Be steadfast with your children, even if they don't respond. Continue to act in faith and love toward them. Display God's grace and his character. Be forgiving. Return good for evil. Love your enemies. 
Work hard at what you're doing, even if you're not uh, thanked for it or appreciated or paid adequately. So just be steadfast. Go on doing what God has called you to do. And unmovable. Be stable. Don't be blown around by all these doctrines and winds that come through town and the, the temptations to give way to something that is more dramatic, some miracle, some sign that will make your life so, uh, that will somehow enhance your Christian life because our life seems to be so dull and drab and mundane. Sometimes. But Paul says, be unmovable. Don't be moved away from your position of belief and faith and confidence in the Word of God. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is, do more than you're asked. Overflow in your giving to people in need. Knowing that your toil is not empty in the Lord. The, Paul, the word that Paul uses here for toil is a word that means arduous uh, labor, hard labor, work that, that exacts a great deal of energy and time, effort, Paul says. That's, really, that's what life is like. Very often is toilsome. But know that your toil is not in vain. It's not empty. You're not wasting your life. You're not throwing it away. Because there's a, there's a day coming when the sons of God will be revealed for what they really are. And in the meantime, Act like sons of God. Let's pray, shall we? There may be some of you here that, that have never learned to know Jesus Christ. And all you can foresee is, is death and darkness beyond that. Paul has told us that God has prepared a place for us. He's prepared a a perfect environment and a body that's suited for that environment. And you can, in the quietness of your own heart, prepare yourself for that life simply by asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Just ask Him to forgive your sins. Come into your life as Lord and Savior. Make you His Son. John said, But as many as received Him, to them gave he the authority to be sons of God. Would you ask him to come in? And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're everything that, that we need, all of us, to face life now, to be what we ought to be. We thank you that your victory is being worked out in our lives, on our jobs, in our homes, in our families. We thank you in Jesus' name.